Hello, party people, and welcome back for kind of the part two to the part one of this two-part conversation. That was unnecessarily confusing. <laughs> Last time we talked about H. pylori. Now we're going to talk about gastritis, under which H. pylori could be part of that umbrella, right? Like H. pylori can cause gastritis. But um, care to lead the way? Care to, first of all, my darling, would you define gastritis? What is gastritis, first of all? And then we could kind of take the conversation from there. Yeah, I I always think like whenever you hear some of these terms using context clues can be helpful. So like gastro is usually like stomach related and then itis is inflammation. So it's really sort of yeah. irritation or inflammation in the stomach. Um, I, I do think gastritis is such an interesting area in the SIBO space because I can't tell you how many clients I've had where they've been like, oh, my endoscopy has been fine. Nothing was found. And then I'll look at the endoscopy results and it'll say gastritis or like, um, you know, redness or, you know, it's, it might be my yeah. like not super intense, but like it was just totally blown over by yeah. the conventional system. So, again, I've seen that probably five to 10 times. I don't know where that, where that line is, but I think it's sometimes really overlooked as potentially a culprit for symptoms. And it can be something again, that if it goes unresolved, I think can be painful for one thing. And you might sort of yeah. think, Oh my gosh, is this SIBO? Like I think sometimes people associate the pain that they're having from a gastritis standpoint to see with SIBO and you yeah. could have both things going on, which would make things a little bit confusing. But I do think in some cases, people are like, oh, my gosh, I got to get rid of this pain. And the pain they're actually feeling is is more gastritis related than SIBO related. I don't know if you've seen people yeah. kind of skip over the gastritis um, part of the yeah. equation. I have seen that before where like the doctor just doesn't mention that finding. Right, um, right. I've seen that with other testing for that matter too. Like, right. I'm going to sound paranoid, but trust no one. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> trust no one. Always get a copy of your lab results or the lab report or the procedure report or the chart notes. Like always request copies of your stuff because I've seen mm. that happen with like abdominal CTs where yeah. something was found and that they didn't mention it to the patient and that I'm the one pointing out like, oh, they noted X, Y, and Z right here, right. like in this paragraph. And I have seen that on occasion with endoscopy. Um, and it's usually written out as like, you know, mild gastritis is seen. Like I do right. think there's probably a threshold where the GI doctor is going to mention it. Like if it was moderate to severe, then they would definitely mention it. But if it's right. mild, they might not. Um, but yeah, the, the symptoms, I kind of think of gastritis as overlapping with symptoms somewhere like halfway between acid reflux and SIBO symptoms, because mm -hmm. you can have like the feeling of acid and that like gnawing acidic feeling mm -hmm. in your in your stomach or like kind of right behind the sternum in the middle of the mm. chest almost um, is where it's oftentimes felt or just kind of under the rib cage. Um, so you could have symptoms that seem like acid reflux, especially when you add food or drinks 
to the mix, but also there could be a like a fullness, mm. especially after right. eating. Because I think what probably ends up happening is that when you have stomach inflammation, your stomach emptying might be somewhat compromised, mm-hmm. right? Because like yep. the organ is inflamed and ticked off and it's not able to do its job super well. So that's probably what's happening is that the inflamed stomach is not able to empty as appropriately or as quickly as it normally would. And it gives this feeling of like fullness or like right. kind of indigestion or bloating. And that's a big, that's like probably the number one symptom that people with SIBO talk about is the bloating, especially right. when eating. So it it's kind of this weird overlap where you feel like you have GERD and SIBO, but a lot of the symptoms could be attributed to the gastritis directly. And again, like, A, if you don't know you have it, then you're never going to treat it. But also the the typical kind of conventional treatment is pretty subpar as well. They're going to tell you, oh, take a PPI, Nexium, Omeprazole, or whatever it might be. Take a PPI. Maybe if you're lucky, they'll prescribe like sulcrophate, which is a medication that kind of like coats the stomach. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's kind of it. And then they're like, yeah, good luck. And if you have H. pylori as a cause of the gastritis, and if it's bad enough, then they'll give you antibiotics or triple therapy or quadruple therapy. But it is this very unsatisfying like conversation of like, all right, well, what do I do? Ah, just like take this one drug and you're fine. And that's usually right. not the case. Yeah. And I, I think to some of the fullness as well, and that you're describing just if they're the stomach is inflamed too you're not going to be able to digest things well there like in terms of like are you producing enough acidity then i think again like there's some cases where maybe gastritis is linked to something that's going to increase acid and then other times where again the inflammation there prevents proper digestion as yeah. well um and in and, and i off, right right Right. And and I do think that, um, you know, from a, a gastritis standpoint, how I might try to differentiate the symptoms between like a SIBO bloating or fullness feeling compared to like a gastritis fullness feel, feeling is how quickly it comes on, too. I think sometimes that can help. Like if you're getting this fullness like relatively quickly upon eating like within um, minutes. Right. Then that's probably not SIBO related. I mean, there can sometimes be like if you're eating and different areas of the gut are emptying into other areas, which can sometimes lead to that. But I would say again, like if it's morning and you fasted for a while and like every morning when you eat, you're getting pretty early satiety and fullness. To me, it may- would make me wonder about the stomach environment. Um, yeah. And again, there there could be other things like uh, uh, low stomach acid um, mm-hmm. that could be leading to early fullness too without the gastritis paired with it that might lead to yeah. a little bit of early satiety type feelings as well. But if you're kind of getting symptoms relatively quickly upon eating after after like a longer fast, like at breakfast, I'm I would say again, like if you're I don't know if this is a SIBO symptom or not. I'd almost think it would be potentially more stomach related than small intestinal related. 
I think also this could be a cause of just chronic bloating that just right. is nonstop. Like with, with right. SIBO, if you only have SIBO, acknowledging that everybody with, have, with SIBO has something else going on, pretty right. much. Like something else had to cause the SIBO. But theoretically, if you only had SIBO and it was like a clear cut, simple case of SIBO, nothing else going on, no gastritis, no leaky gut, no candida, no nothing else. You would think the pattern, pardon me, the pattern should be you wake up with a flat stomach, you feel great, you eat food with a lot of like fiber, like FODMAPs or a lot of carbs, you feed the bacteria, they make some gases, then you get the abdominal distension or the feeling of bloating or a combination thereof, and that's when the symptoms start. Then as you get further away from that meal, the symptoms come down and maybe you feel good and normal before lunch. And then the same thing happens at lunch and then the same thing repeats at right. dinner. But with with just clear cut, straightforward SIBO and nothing else, you would think that this, the bloating would diminish when the food leaves right. the small bowel. But among the many reasons that you could have chronic bloating, like the people who say that they wake up the moment they wake right, up they're right, bloated, right. until the moment they go to bed, they're bloated. This could be one of the reasons because remember, even when your stomach is empty, it's still right. full of acid. And if right. you have gastritis and you have that inflammation, you literally always have something in your stomach that can irritate the tissues. And the trick is you don't want to get rid of the stomach acid forever and ever, like maybe as a short-term Band-Aid solution, but you don't want to diminish your stomach acidity as a Band-Aid solution forever ultimately you want to get your stomach to a point where it can tolerate the acid that you normally have in there. But that could right. be another kind of differentiating um, symptom is like the chronic unrelenting bloating. I've also seen that with endometriosis. I've seen that mm, yeah. um, like IBD or like celiac disease, like really, really profound cases of like leaky gut. You could think of it that way. Um, right. I don't think they too like... Off. I, oh, I would say ahead. too, like sometimes even like severe, severe motility issues could potentially yeah. lead to some of what you're describing. The only other symptom I think that could be relevant that I see often sometimes with gastritis is sometimes eating can help. So like if you feel like you have like a gnawing pain in your gut that almost gets worse when your gut's empty for a while. And then it gets a little bit better when you eat something. Um, Again, maybe you still have that fullness, but that gnawing pain kind of subsides for at least a little bit. Like it's relieved a bit by eating. Sometimes that can be a pretty common sign of of gastritis. Like whenever someone says like, oh, I get, I have pain and it tends to get worse if I fast, like the longer I fast and then when I eat, it gets slightly better and it might get worse again, like not super long after that. But if it kind of gets somewhat relieved with eating, that can be a, 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 a usually to me, I'm going to explore gastritis if I hear that as well. I don't know if you've seen that symptom. Yeah, yeah. I've, I have seen it go both ways. I've seen people with gastritis right. who feel worse when they put food into the into their stomach. And I've seen people like you're saying, where like they eat and it actually feels soothing, maybe because you're buffering and you're like diluting the stomach acid a bit and you're buffering Mm -hmm. it and adding something else into the mix instead of just pure acid. 
Right. Um, so yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that because it can go both ways, which makes it really freaking confusing right, right. for people when they're trying to figure out what's going on with their body. I mean, both mechanisms make sense, but because similarly, like when you eat food, you are secreting more acid and right. like the food itself could be irritating to the stomach or the additional secreted acid could be irritating your stomach, causing the increase of symptoms. But then another person with gastritis could feel relieved because the, the additional food is buffering the acid that they have. And then there's like something else kind of interfacing with the GI mucosa. So I've seen it go both ways. Um, right. I, I And I think the, the only other thing that sometimes, or again, that another thing I'll look out for for gastritis is, and this isn't always the case because which is confusing, like when you're saying things go both ways, is if they take HCL and mm-hmm. notice burning or pain. Again, some yeah. people are like, oh, I have sufficient acid then. Like, I don't need it. But again, I think there's also certain situations where if you're taking HCL and getting some burning, I mean, you you might want to pair it with some other evidence, but mm-hmm. it could be kind of indicative. I've also seen some people res- respond poorly to certain enzymes mm-hmm. if they have gastritis and irritation. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I think it, those are a couple other things to look out for. Like if you've had pretty bad reactions to HCL or and certain enzymes um, yeah. from like a pain standpoint, I, I yeah. might consider something like irritation in the stomach yeah well if you think about it a lot of enzymes are they're either going to be designed to break down carbs or fats or proteins and a lot Mm -hmm. of these like digestive enzymes that we see on the market have proteolytic enzymes in them and then you drop that into the stomach and it starts digesting proteins (laughs) and fats and and digesting you (laughs) Yeah, it's, it is. It's kind of honest to God, it's digesting you in a weird way. Um, mm-hmm. Again, like if you have a nice thick mucus layer and it's protected and your GI mucosa isn't inflamed, then the enzymes could probably just pass it to the lower digestive system, like into the intestine and do their job there. But if you have that irritation and that inflammation, then taking digestive enzymes and HCL can not only be difficult, it can kind of be dangerous. In yeah. My so like, yeah. That is one thing I wanted to point out is that if you have gastritis, even if you have SIBO or IBS or constipation Mm. or something else that could be theoretically aided by taking HCL or enzymes, please don't. Like, don't do it when the gastritis is really hot and irritated. You've got to wait until the gastritis is somewhat under control. It doesn't have to be perfect, but don't go in with a pissed off, angry stomach that's already hot and inflamed and then drop in a bunch of betaine HCL because I can almost guarantee it's not going to work real well. And it's going to, it's going to make things feel worse versus somebody with run of the mill acid reflux where, Mm. you know, maybe that would actually be helpful. And again, the symptoms could overlap. So it's, it could be a bit confusing. Yeah. I I think that um, you're, you're dead on. And I would say that it's almost a priority issue like if there's irritation in the stomach you know it's going to be really hard to move forward with other sorts of interventions i even think some of the herbals that might be helpful for SIBO are painful for gastritis so 
from my standpoint, you have to work north to south. And again, if there's a lot of irritation in the stomach, that could prevent some interventions that might work both in the stomach and further down. You're much better off focusing on the northern parts and doing things that yeah. are going to soothe and repair the mucosa like you, you were mentioning first. Um, you're going to be much better off and able to do other interventions if you solve yeah. that problem first. And I I see in the SIBO space, again, a lot of people wanting to jump to yeah. the microbial killing or, let, you know, they want to jump yeah. downstream and it's like, if the gastritis issues are not handled, it's really hard to move downstream, no matter how much we want to do that. It's just ill-advised and probably would create way more problems than it'll solve yeah. if you're throwing a lot of herbs at the at an inflamed stomach or throwing again yeah. like HCL and stuff at at an inflamed stomach. So it, it can be it can be a little tricky. Sometimes ginger can even be irritating. Um, oh, I'd say almost always. If you, yeah. if you have bad enough gastritis, ginger will almost certainly tick it off. I will say right. like any, and that's one of the things is like, again, say you have a person who has SIBO or IBS, something like in the intestines, and they have gastritis, you have to treat the gastritis first, at least right. get it, you know, like 80% better. So it's manageable. Right. First, A, because the tools that you have available to you for the SIBO are going to be severely limited. Like right. I, you know, ginger is a really classic one. Right. I I don't think I've had a person yet with confirmed gastritis who's able to take ginger. It is just too hot, <laughs> right. too peppery, too spicy. Um, right. So then I'll kind of go through, try to help figure out another prokinetic. And I've even seen, this one's hit and miss, but I've seen some people with gastritis have a really hard time with artichoke leaf. Just mm. plain Jane artichoke leaf. Some people can do it, some people can't, but we kind of play with that. Um, and that limits how much you can really nudge your motility along for this bigger right. SIBO conversation. So it's almost right. like you need to work on the gastritis in order to diversify your tool belt for the SIBO. Similarly, antimicrobials, a lot of antimicrobials either have astringent properties or they're oil-based, and they can be really irritating to an already mm. irritated gastric mucosa. The biggest right. one being oregano, oil yeah. of oregano. I've seen this happen with tablets, with liquids, oil of oregano and like thyme oil, clove oil, um, any of those like oil-based antimicrobials will piss off the stomach if you have gastritis from what I've seen. And even things like berberine, like berberine mm, has a little yeah. bit of a astringent nature to it that could sometimes irritate gastritis. Um, even things that you wouldn't suspect. Like I had a student in FODMAP Freedom recently who said, so we had gotten talking about her GERD. She doesn't know if she has gastritis, but she wonders. And it the the reflux had been worse for a, a while, for a couple months. And we talked about what supplements she was taking. And she was taking magnesium citrate because she's constipated. And I said, right. eh, cut out the magnesium citrate for a week or two and report back on the upper GI stuff because I've seen things with citrate or citric acid or any sort of acid component to them. I've seen them be irritating to the stomach mucosa with people right. who have delicate GI, uh, upper GI systems. Sure enough, last week on the Q&A, she told me, or no, week, week before that, I think, she confirmed, she said, oh, by the way, cutting out the magnesium citrate 
night and day difference in my reflux. It's like 90% diminished now. And, but that she's like, but I'm not pooping quite as well because it was helping me poop. So we talked about like other forms of magnesium or other things that she could use in the meantime to get the pooping going again. But, you know, weird stuff can irritate the stomach if you have gastritis. So you've got to keep your moods about you. But certainly anything that's like oil-based or astringent or, you know, any probably anything that you wouldn't put directly on your skin and leave there for a few hours. Like probably anything, um, well, I don't know. I suppose you could put like ginger tea on your skin and be fine. But just think of it that way. Like it's anything that's peppery or spicy or irritating or acidic or uh, caustic or astringent in any way could be further irritating your stomach. Right. And that's a lot of things. There are a lot of herbs that have some of these properties. So your tool belt is going to be quite limited. Um, yeah. That was the, I, oh, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, too, the nice thing about the stomach, though, is usually you can find some herbs and things that can soothe and build up the mucosa relatively quickly. Um, you know, it's not going to be like months of you doing something to build up the the mucosa. Like typically, again, for most people, there might be some more difficult cases if you have like autoimmune form of, of gastritis Mm -hmm. and those types of things. But, you know, if, if you do some certain things that are going to build up the mucosa, I mean, that's the key to kind of soothe the the stomach lining. Um, it shouldn't be like a forever problem for 99% of gastritis cases, yeah. I feel like. You could be more prone to it um, for a number of reasons. But I think the, the nice thing is it tends to be something that's relatively easy to um, to treat and to work on, I, I would say. Yeah. Uh, um, again, you have the sometimes a little bit some weirder cases sometimes, but I, I think again, like for the most part, there's some things that I think are pretty good at helping coat the the lining um, nicely. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I, I think that like anything else, there's a couple of different aspects to treating gastritis. So a kind of going backward to the root cause of it all. Um, if you have gastritis because you have an H. pylori infection, then you've got to treat that. And keep in mind, uh, keep in mind a couple fold is that, um, again, some of the antimicrobial herbs might be a little bit irritating to begin with. So you've got to be careful when you're choosing herbs. Um, There's a lot of different antimicrobial herbs and compounds and vitamins that have been shown to help eradicate H. pylori. Uh, But also keep in mind that the testing for H. pylori is deeply flawed like Mm -hmm. if you have an h pylori test and it is a stool antigen test different from the gi map of note but if it's a like lab corp or quest based you know stool antigen test for h pylori or if it's a breath test or a blood test for h pylori those are all deeply flawed and they're only going to catch like the most outrageously overgrown cases of h pylori Mm, like your stomach has to be like 90% 90% full of H. pylori and nothing else to right. find that on that type of testing versus something like maybe a GI map or an endoscopy, they would probably be able to catch, catch the more subtle cases. Um, so A, if you have gastritis because of H. pylori, you have to treat that. 
even in the absence of H. pylori, there might be an infectious component for a lot of cases of gastritis. It does seem like the research is starting to point that direction with like uh, strep and staph species, for example, hunker it down in the stomach. I think particularly right. strep species can can be theoretically a causative agent for this. Um, where they've done like studies comparing the normal gastric microbiome versus people with gastritis. Um, and then you touched on, on the autoimmune thing, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, also, like if you are chronically using NSAIDs or medications that are irritating the stomach lining, then that has to go. If you're a smoker, then smoking actually is associated with gastritis. So there's a, a lot of different things that could be causal in this, um, several of which are infectious and you can kind of tackle those with, with antimicrobials. But the first thing is trying to understand why you have gastritis and assess that as thoroughly as you can, get to the root of it so that you can treat the microbial component of it if need be. Then there's the world of like coating and soothing the stomach and trying to lower the inflammation and then, like we mentioned before, oftentimes people will have some deficiency in stomach emptying. So maybe supporting that down the road would be helpful. But again, a lot of the things that will help with stomach emptying, mm -hmm. like the propedetics, are going to be irritating. So right. that's that's like a down the road kind of thing that you you bring that in a little bit towards the end of working on gastritis. But let's go to some of those the herbs that you you mentioned because we talked about critter killin in the H. pylori episode already. So we probably don't need to reinvent the wheel there. Um, but let's talk about some of the herbs that you found particularly helpful for gastritis. Yeah, one other thing too, I'll, I'll mention in terms of like, definitely cutting out is alcohol um, mm. is another one that's just pretty can be pretty irritating in the stomach. That's where alcohol gets metabolized is the stomach. So, mm. you know, I think a lot of my clients are already cutting that out. I, um, I had a client in the past who in ever it's so interesting. Cause like what's moderation is just different across the spectrum. Yeah. Like someone's like, I don't know, like, I don't know if I should drink at all. Like in the SIBO space where they're like, I'm like, well, how much are you drinking? And it's like, Oh, like once a month, like to me, I'm like, Oh, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable yeah. thing. But, and then again, like I had, I have one client in mind too. I think I was like reviewing her chronometer data and I like thought there was an error in the alcohol amount because it was like basically I think she had written like two cups or something um which in chronometer that's eight ounces uh mm. so a cup's eight ounces so it would be 16 ounces which would be like essentially four glasses of wine um and she was doing it each night and I was like no no we need to like definitely cut back on this but like I think culturally like she was really into wines like fine wines so like she yeah. would just like drink while she would make dinner mm. and then would drink during dinner and then like by the time things kind of yeah. uh rolled around she would again it just it was just a little bit too much so cutting cutting that yeah. back I think can be so important in kind of figuring out what I think cutting it out completely for a period of time and then again, probably you'll be able to incorporate it in at some point, but just doing it yeah. in reasonable in amounts. True moderation. Right. In true moderation. Yes. 
Yeah. yeah but yeah. Chris Master John had a good video on that a while back. I, I forget now. Hopefully I don't misquote him, but it was basically the idea that a little bit of alcohol is protective and then a lot of alcohol is not protective. And right. I think that I think that the numbers that he said, it was either one drink per day or per week for women and one to two for men. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was one per week was the number I think that you're he right. said. But and that's kind of aligned with what I've heard from from like some of the meta reviews. Yeah. Like Yeah, so that's kind of what you're looking at. Like if you're having, you know, a drink, you know, like on the weekend, fine. Right. Like not a big deal. But if you're having even wine every single night, then that probably is doing some not good stuff to your metabolism and your liver and your stomach and God right. knows what else. But and we'll just lightly touch on this, like alcohol is such a weird one. Because it's such a big part of our culture to go out right. and drink. Right. Um, and like drink after work, go to the bars, meet meet the future love of your life at the bar, getting shockered. Like that's a huge thing. And some some other places in the world, like Europe and Japan, like it's also a very big deal. Uh, like alcohol and drinking with your coworkers or drinking with your friends or drinking right. at your meal. Um, so it could be a little tough because culturally some people are just like, it's really deeply ingrained, but you know, almost treat it like Lent. If, if you give it up for a month and you notice no change whatsoever, then by all means, bring it back in and try to just moderate it and not go hog wild. Uh, right. the data is starting to show us that it can be overdone, but if you cut it out for a month and you feel better, then you just learn something really useful about your body. And I don't care how many studies come out saying that a glass of red wine is just as good as going to the gym. <laughs> it's not. It is not. We are lying to ourselves. We are silly billies. Don't fall for those stupid tabloids and those stupid headlines and the stupid segment on like the NBC nightly news. I've heard that several times over the years. And like the exercise scientist in me weeps every time I hear that stupid headline. Like, oh, just just drink a glass of wine. It's just as good as the gym, man. Like mm. Right. Well, it's always funny too, like in those studies, they'll just like cherry pick like one line and totally ignore every, like the total analysis of the study. Like that's not really what the conclusion was, but they found one shred yeah. of of evidence that might correlate with the with that idea. But yeah, I think you're right. We're not necessarily the fun police or something. We're not trying to tell you, like, you know, never go out to a happy hour again. It's just, it's about, because I do think, again, like what you're saying, connection's so important. Connection's so important. So, like, if you feel like you want to go out with your friends once a week and and get a drink, like, by all means, do it. Um, But again, I I think you're right. It's sort of about finding the balance, but it can be tricky. I think, especially if you're younger, I remember when my gut issues were flaring, I was still a pretty big drinker, I would say during, during that timeframe. So it was, it was a weird period. I think um, trying to cut it out when all my friends, like that's, that's how they socialized. Um, I think now again, like as I'm older, it's a little bit less, of an issue like we're not going to the clubs or like you know you are raging right we're not raging anymore um most of my friends have kind of out good money can we can we talk about this though i would pay such good money 
to see you and Armand go to a club with like Chip in like a baby a carrier on your back or something. No, not yeah. in a backpack, like a baby carrier. So his little legs are like doing this. You're right. <laughs> As you're dancing, you're like doing the Macarena or whatever. Oh, gosh. I'm down. I'm always down for like karaoke and dancing. I can get pretty hog wild, but you know, I just again, I I sort of cut, I cut way back on on drinking with my gut stuff. I I I still drink sometimes, yeah. not now because I'm pregnant, but oh, yeah. um, but yeah, I think it was interesting because when I kind of cut it majorly back, um. You know, I never even really regained like tolerance level either. Mm. Like, because I'm like, oh my gosh, like back in college, I could really throw it back and have a high tolerance. But it's like now it's like one drink and I like, I'm such a, a lightweight. But I think again, if you kind of cut it back, it yeah. does, you can definitely feel the, the level of alcohol much stronger to see and now you could be a cheap date and you don't have to spend right. much money on the booze so right good. exactly i you know it's funny I'll, this is a odd little tangent but i mean it's the obvious creative podcast people like you've you've been with us for a 90 something episode so you shouldn't be surprised by these weird tangents um we somehow we brought up alcohol recently mike and i did and i don't remember how it came up exactly um Oh, I know, because I was I had a little bit of a sore throat and I ran down to my little herbal apothecary and I made myself a tincture, which is basically herbs soaked in vodka. They taste right. awful. Just right. horrible. And like I hate them all. <laughs> and I I, I weep because I like I'm trying to like learn more about herbs and I hate saying that, but I just I hate tinctures so much. And I'll take them, I'll just suck it up and take them. But I was putting like a teaspoon of this tincture in like a full shot glass of water and drinking it. And I was still like, Ugh, right? like I can still taste the alcohol so much. And I'm so repulsed by it. I was like, Oh God. And Mike it was kind of laughing at me because I was doing this, like throwing down my shooter of watered right. down vodka herbs. I was doing this in the kitchen and I was like, you know, like even when I was, the, the right age, like, I wasn't ever a big drinker. Mike and I started going out when we were, like, 21, 22. And I was right. like, even even when I was the appropriate age, like, I wasn't a big drinker. I really had to be in the mood for it. And he was like, oh, well, you couldn't drink a lot, though, right? Because of rowing? Because, like, you were basically, right. like, rowing all the time. And I, we had to wake up at 4.55 a.m. to be down to the boathouse and rowing on the creek. And he was like, well, yeah, like, obviously you couldn't drink, right? And I was like, ah, <laughs> nay good sir nay i did not drink a lot of my close friends did not drink heavily for that reason and right. some of my teammates hit it hard right. every weekend like friday saturday sunday night they were pounding it down and oh man i never once understood how they did that because then they would go and they would row and right. like, do I was like, I I can barely do this as it is, and I'm not drinking. Like my wild night was going to the anime club meetings right. because the anime club met late at night from like you know nine to twelve or something. They rented out the big screen of the student union, so that was my my wild late night was sitting with a bunch of geeks watching anime. It was amazing. But oh my gosh, I maybe drank like twice a year, even when I was the appropriate age to do so. 
Um, but yeah, you'd be surprised. Oh no, I was, I was definitely, I was definitely a a party girl. I was a party girl. I'm a reformed party girl. The the what what I couldn't imagine doing is like there were kids in my like at UK where I went to undergrad who would literally drink every single night. Like there was no break. Like you're talking about the weekends. And again, that would be really hard in combination with rowing. I agree. But like you have people going out five to six days a week. That's what I don't understand. Like how, how they can survive and function, but they did. I think again, like it's sort of a testament. I think like young bodies just are resilient. Sometimes I wonder how I survived, but yeah, I, I would drink once and I'd be like, all right, I'm good for six months. Right, right, <laughs> like, right. call me up when, when, you know, it'd be like the end of the year party. And like, after all our races and stuff were done, like we, there would be like an end of the year party and then maybe like an end of the semester, like winter break kind of party. And that was it. That's all I had the capacity to do. Um, but yeah, yeah. But anyway, so going back to the actual topic at hand. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Alcohol could definitely be a contributor. Um, also, coffee. I don't know if it's right. the caffeine, the polyphenols, the acidic nature of it. I don't know what it is about coffee. But coffee and, like, caffeine in general can be quite irritating. Um, also, a lot of the foods that make it onto these, like, anti-reflux or gastritis food lists of, like, things to avoid they're oftentimes labeled as acidic foods, quote unquote. So it would be things like tomatoes and vinegar and lemon juice. But I will throw out there, those are all very high histamine foods also. So Mm. it could be that a lot of people with reflux or gastritis have some degree of a histamine problem. And they just so happen to follow this dietary advice for GERD or gastritis, and they cut out a bunch of histamine foods. But keep in mind that there's a histamine receptor in the stomach and it Mm -hmm. is involved in the production of stomach acid. And that's why things like Zantac work. They work on the histamine receptor and they block it. So keep that in mind too. Like it might be the pH and the acidity of the food, or it might be the histamine like burden or the histamine liberation that you get from the food. And it makes it really freaking complicated when you get into it. Right. Right. No, I think that's such a good point. I think the histamines, the histamine side of the equation, though, I feel like people do not really connect the dots, even though there is such a such a strong conventional push to understand, like, oh, you know, you could take Zantac um, Mm -hmm. or what's the one that's the AC? No, I can't think of it. Um, Not Zantac, Pepsid, Pepsid, AC or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, like they're all H2 blockers. So yeah. it, it's sort of understood, I think, in the conventional space. Um, but I don't think I, I don't think people are really making a strong connection between histamine issues and potentially that being a driver of stomach acidity and gastri- gastritis yeah. or, again, at least an irritator of it. Yeah, it's it's a potential contributing factor for sure. Right. Um, I'll throw out one more too. And this kind of blew my mind when I, I uncovered this little nugget. Um, Mm -hmm. let me pull up the actual article real quick. And that way, if anybody wants to like read it or get into it, you can. Um, and while I pull that up, I'll just say, so 
going back to this idea that we had talked about, your ability to treat IBS and SIBO is going to be severely limited. And the tools that you have available to you are going to be severely limited if you don't try to tackle the gastritis and the upper GI stuff first. I, I totally agree with the north to south uh, kind of analogy right. here. Um, that that being said, that was something that I noticed. Like I could do that with my one-on-one clients, right? Like I can right. kind of help prioritize things and go through phases mm. and customize it to the individual. But when I started FODMAP Freedom, I didn't have anything in there for GERD or gastritis because it's not a GERD or gastritis class. Like it's it's a SIBO and IBS class. Right. But I was noticing that a a subgroup of the people in FODMAP Freedom were really struggling to implement the things that I was telling them to do because it was like there there was this barrier and it was their stomach. Like, oh, I would I would have people try out prokinetics. Couldn't do it because of the gastritis. Right. Or I would have people um, like trying to diversify their diet. Couldn't do it. Gastritis. So I ended up making, I it's a mini course, but it's like kind of a big mini course called Banish the Burn. And as of right now, I haven't, I haven't ever like had it out in the world on its own. I just give it as part of the FODMAP Freedom suite of stuff. But when I was doing a deep dive on PubMed for this particular class and I was making all the modules for it, I came across this really bizarre research study, and I don't remember if I ever told you about it, Amy. Hmm. It's titled, for those of you who want to read it a bit, it's a 2018 paper, New Food Approaches to Reduce and or Eliminate Increased Gastric Acidity Related to Gastroesophageal Pathologies. The PubMed ID, which is easier than writing all that down, is 2972904. So go ahead and look it up. It was very interesting. I think it was out of Italy, but basically, um, I forget where I found this. I think it was like the self-hacked website, mm. if I remember correctly. Yeah. And they had a bullet point in their giant website about gastritis. They had a bullet point saying that the Mediterranean diet has been shown to help gastritis. And I was like, oh, that would be a neat little tidbit of knowledge to put in this course. I'm going to go look at the reference. I'm going to go back to... Trust nobody. <laughs> Trust nobody. Verify references when you can. They referenced the article in that that self-hacked website. I went and I read the article. That was not the conclusion at all. It was the opposite of the conclusion, in fact. And I'll get into oh why that is gosh. in a second. And they just put that in their website. Like, yeah, the Mediterranean diet helps. And it was that not even close to the conclusion of the paper. Not even close. Oh, I Lord. don't know where they got this from. And it's, I like that zellpack.com website. I like their stuff, generally speaking. But I was like, oh. right. so what happened? So the study design was they took a bunch of people with gastritis. They had them do the Mediterranean diet for two weeks. And that was the baseline. And they mm -hmm. would assess with like, you know, symptom questionnaires to see how people felt. So they did two weeks of the Mediterranean diet. And this was like 111 or 118 people, by the way. So they did the symptom survey, no change whatsoever. Like they, they mm. still had, they still had gastritis. Right. Then they did two weeks of the Mediterranean diet with the addition of acidic foods. I think they had them drink like a certain amount of lemon juice or eat a certain amount of tomatoes every day in addition to the Mediterranean diet. And shocker, 
they actually had an exacerbation in their symptoms. Right. Okay, cool. Linear so far. I'm following it. Then they did the Mediterranean diet for another two weeks and they went back to their crappy baseline. So no change again for the second time with the Mediterranean diet. Then they did the Mediterranean diet with the combination of restricting. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's either glycid or glycide. I think it's glycid. It's spelled G-Y-L-C-I-D. So they restricted glycid and they did Mediterranean. So it was like a slight Mm. modification to that. And the people felt better. Like almost all of them. It was like 111 out of the 118 people felt notably better. Mm. Okay, cool. They went back to Mediterranean without the glycid restriction thing. They went back to their crappy baseline. Then the final, the final like mind blow moment they did, and this was all two weeks at a time for each of these things. Right. The last round, Mediterranean diet minus glycid with the addition of the acidic foods, and they still felt great. Wow. Like, what was going on here? Is is this glycid? Is it like a compound in food, certain foods, or what? It is. Um, so let me actually pull up something because I I cannot even begin to tell you like how obtuse it was to figure out what this glycid compound is because I've never heard of it. And I like to think I know stuff about nutrition. I had to really research it. I had to find like an obscure textbook on Google textbooks and like pay $19 to rent the textbook for a week or something like because that was all I could find. Right. Um, it is glycid is made in the refining and deodorizing process of plant oils, namely Mm. palm oil and rice oil. Mm. So basically they were eliminating the things that would contain palm oil. So as, as examples, anything with shortening or Crisco, like a baked good, or sometimes fried foods are fried in like Crisco, Mm. Um, you know, cookies, pastries, cakes, pop tarts, bread, Um, Anything that would have any degree of palm oil in them. Um, Sometimes chips and crackers can can be in there as well. But really, it's it's like processed carbs is a way to kind of look at it. Because it's in the refining and the deodorizing process. When we take this palm oil from the palm tree and we're refining it and making it like smell nice and look nice for consumers to buy in the grocery store. And I... It was, it was wild. Like I had never heard of this compound before. I tried to look on PubMed. I couldn't find really anything else about it. Uh, This was a 2018 study. I have not seen it replicated. I have not seen this particular research group do anything else with this research yet, but it was deeply fascinating. And Mm. they even, in the study, they even have like the, the break, they list exactly what the people ate each day as well. And I included that in my slides and banished the burn. But the big thing, again, like the amount of glycides in in the food, rice oil and palm oil are number one and two, very, very close together. Um, there's a little bit of it that can be found in walnut oil, olive oil, margarine, um, and then all the other oils kind of like go way down the list. Oddly enough, the unhealthy oils might be better in this regard. So <laughs> The lowest of all the lows, peanut oil was the lowest, followed by rapeseed oil, 
followed by soybean oil, followed by corn oil. Those were the lowest in this glycid stuff. So like, oddly enough, I don't know, like you, you could try it. It's one study with like a hundred and something people. It's not, it's not like the biggest study to go off of, but it is something. And I and, wonder, and it's, I guess like they think that this glycid compound is, or these glycide compounds are like irritating to the gastric mucosa and they could be carcinogenic. So mm. that's kind of like the underlying theory is that these compounds that are made in the purification and deodorizing process are like intrinsically pro-inflammatory and irritating and carcinogenic. And some people are just way more vulnerable to them than others. Hmm. Interesting. So weird. And let us not forget, the Mediterranean diet did nothing. (laughs) Right. right. Nothing. Self-hacked was that diet. I feel like self-hacked was hacked. Yes, self-hacked was hacked, indeed. And again, I like that site. I like their stuff generally. But try to check your references when you can, because that that has happened more times than I could count, where like I saw something on a blog or an article or a YouTube video, and then I go to the study and I read the study and I'm like, wow, that's not even close to what they said. And the the red wine being just as good as the gym is another classic example. (laughs) Something pops up every few years and it makes me want to tear my hair out every time I hear it because it's not true. Oh my gosh, that's too funny. It's too funny. Well, and I think again, like the, I know we were going to talk about some herbs that soothe and things. Do you want to talk about autoimmune gastritis first, or do we want to cover that a little bit? Yeah. Well, um, just and let's then do get the in... herbs first, actually, because, oh, okay. Um, from what I've seen, um, a lot of times people who have the autoimmune gastritis either are asymptomatic for that and they don't know it, or their mm-hmm. symptoms look a lot more like low stomach acid. Right. Um, because that's what's happening is with the autoimmune gastritis, you're attacking the parietal cells that make the HCL. Right. And I typically don't see these people have a lot of like the classic gastritis symptoms. Oddly enough, maybe if it's super, super progressed, but oftentimes I don't see that happening. It's more of like their stomach acid becomes compromised and they it becomes more of a world of giving them exogenous betaine HCL and working on the autoimmunity and that sort of arm mm. of it. So let's let's talk about that in a couple okay. minutes because I think it actually merits a different kind of conversation. But yeah. with um, with gastritis that was caused by like a medication or, you know, like NSAIDs or antibiotics or H. pylori or dysbiosis or alcohol or coffee. Like all of these are are typically going to be what's considered erosive gastritis. And mm, those, yep. I think, particularly the first name of the game is just to mitigate symptoms and get these people feeling a bit better. So it doesn't feel like they're chewing a hole in their stomach. And that's where a lot of these herbs come in really handy, where they can help coat and soothe and kind of lower the inflammation in the stomach. Right. Well, and one one other thing, again, I think it's relevant across the board, is is like chronic stress, too. Again, like, because it just inhibits digestion and motility and it kind of shuts things down, could be some of the stuff we already mentioned, but it could be kind of underneath some of the the things we mentioned so again if motility is poor in the stomach you have gastroparesis or kind of slow emptying of the stomach 
you if you're chronically stressed, it's going to be hard to solve that. And that might be the root cause of why your motility is so poor. Um, I've, I've seen that before. And right. it's really tough. Sometimes, to be quite honest, sometimes people are just not willing to go there. Right. Like the, right. the nature of the stress, sometimes people are more willing to deal with the the amount of crap they're dealing with right now, rather than ripping off the bandaid and dealing with the stressor. Um, but you know, if you think about it too, just looking at it from a really broad perspective, what do you need for healing? You need blood flow, Mm -hmm. like oxygen glucose, et cetera. Um, you need fuel like glucose. Um, if you're in sympathetic mode all the time, and it, it's that fight or flight stressed out mode and you're dealing with chronic stress or, you know, something is chronically bringing you down. Your one of the functions of the autonomic nervous system is to constrict blood flow in your gut. Mm-hmm. Like it literally takes the, the blood vessels in your gut and shoot, closes right. them up so that you're not wasting blood on digestion and you can shunt that blood to your arms and legs so you can run away from the tiger or whatever it is your body thinks you're running away from. So right. you're not going to get adequate blood flow and healing to any of the tissues from from like your clavicles down to your, your tailbone. You're not going to get adequate blood flow to that whole area to heal the tissues if you're in fight or flight all the time, one of which is the stomach. But it could be that your body is perfectly capable of healing this on its own. But you just need to open up those blood vessels and like deal with the stress and get blood flow and nutrition and oxygen to that area so that your body can finally do its job. It's like you're fighting an uphill battle yeah. that you don't have to fight. Yeah, I feel like, you know, chronic stress is so broad because it could be physical, it can be mental, emotional, but I think it just totally derails digestive capacity, which in, in motility and therefore is going to just screw everything up uh i feel like there's so many digestive issues that can kind of be linked to chronic stress i mean even we talked about histamine stuff i mean what destabilizes mast cells chronic stress so it it it, it's again it's just such a core foundational piece and people probably get annoyed that we bring it up a million times and we beat that dead horse we're beating that dead horse i don't know either Either we're pissing off all our viewers and then new people just happen to stumble upon us or that our viewers don't mind it that much because we still have hits on the YouTube channel and hits on our Buzzsprout account. People are still listening to the podcast. So hopefully it's not it's not annoying people. Uh, but we keep talking about it, not because it's fun, but because it's necessary. We right. it, If we could just tell you like the magic pill to take. And, and tell you like, no, you don't have to deal with your stress. No, you can absolutely bottle that shit up for the rest of your life and be perfectly a-okay. If we could do that, we would, because that's so much easier. And we don't, I don't know about you, but I want them to think I'm a good guy. I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to be the big old meanie who keeps hammering this, the idea of the stress. Right. <laughs> but we've got to right. do it because we would be doing you a disservice if we didn't keep repeating that and really try to help you address that. Right. Um, Well, and I think, again, we just see it all the time being a major issue that like, again, until if it until it's totally addressed and again, moving in a better direction, it can really hold you back. And we just don't want you to make the same 
mistake as I have in my journey, <laughs> like not addressing yeah. stress at times. So, but yeah. Okay. So let's get into the herbs. I feel like we've been like hanging, I don't know, dangling the herbs. Um, but yeah, again, I think like with the herbs side of things, you know, sometimes there's just some really nice basic ones that tend to do do a really nice trick like dgl or licorice yeah um things like slippery elm marshmallow Mm -hmm. um i like zinc carnosine a lot Mm -hmm. um again those are probably the biggies that i use more often than not for for gastritis um I would say, like, from an herbal standpoint, usually, sometimes I'll do them in combination with each other. Yeah. Um, so it it just kind of depends. But, you know, I'm I'm sure you'll you have a, a, a nice herbal repertoire for. Are, yeah, I mean, those are the big ones, honestly. Um, yeah. I really like licorice, um, either DGL or just plain old licorice. Um, it's a, it's pretty cheap and B it's one of those herbs that like you start researching it and go on PubMed and looking up, looking up this species of plant and you realize it does, uh, everything. Right. Right. So, so yes, it's soothing and like coats the stomach and that's lovely, but also, and some of these properties might be more specific to the whole plant, not the DGL version of it. So keep that in mind because the glycerize of come component that they take out when they make deglycerized licorice glycerizer seems to do some stuff medicinally it's just that it's not worth the side effect of the high blood pressure for people who are at risk for that um so keep that in mind this might be like mixing two different things up but um licorice is just anti-inflammatory in general it tends to be good for the type of inflammation that's immune mediated like the autoimmune like squirreliness kind of inflammation mm-hmm. um it has some anti-cancer properties to it so it's used moderately frequently in cancer herbal remedies um it yeah it, it just it has a lot of talents um i think it even helps with detoxification if i remember correctly so there's a lot of things that glyceriza and and licorice in general can do so for me, if somebody has high blood pressure or borderline high blood pressure, I will have them do the DGL choose. If right. they don't, I usually try to convince them to get like licorice as and make it as a tea or drink it or have like the powder whole licorice and mix right. it with water and drink it that way so that you get the glyceriza component. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really cheap. It's very sweet. So sugar addicts love it because it tastes really, really sweet. Um, and it just, it works really nicely. Um, so that's one of my first go-tos. I also well, really and, like marshmallow. Well, oh, um, one other thing about the DGL, and I'd be curious if you've done any deep diving in this, cause I've heard it, but I haven't necessarily researched it, but I, I've read somewhn that it's a mast cell stabilizer. Is ah, that something you've, yeah. you, you've heard too? Cause I, I, I think if there's a histamine component, um, it could be helpful in that regard too. I do think you're right. I forget if it's a mast cell stabilizer necessarily, but one thing that it is known for doing, like in the immune modulation, anti-inflammatory kind of category that right. I mentioned, is it it tends to be something of a Th1 stimulant, which means that it it'll be lightly suppressive to Th2 cells. 
And it's TH2 cells that tell mast cells to degranulate and do their squirrely business. So it's like, it, it might have a direct effect on mast cells, and I'm just not remembering it right now, but it does have an indirect effect on mast cells via the TH2, TH1 kind of balance. Mm. And I yeah. think that's probably part of why it's used in cancer therapy as well, because generally you need more TH1 mediated immunity if you're going to fight off a, a cancer. So, right. yeah. Right. Okay, yeah. cool. Yep. So licorice is very talented. And again, and it's cheap. It's easy to grow. It's easy to source. Like it's it's very sustainable. Um, marshmallow is my number two. I think marshmallow and slippery elm are both fantastic, but marshmallow is it's easier to grow. Slippery elm is a tree. It's a you get the bark from the tree, and it's it's slow growing, and it's it's more difficult to source. And we are over harvesting slippery elm, so I try to not use it as much if I can get away with it. And I try to opt for marshmallow instead. Um, and I'll have people make that as a cold infusion and just take like the chunks of marshmallow root that you could get. Like it'll say like cut and sifted marshmallow root when you buy it online. You soak that in water, you know, room temperature or cool water for like a day or two. You get a nice kind of slimy, slimy drink. You filter off the little chunks of marshmallow root and then you drink that nice slimy mixture. And it does a really nice job. Um, Fun fact, marshmallow also is helpful for urinary tract irritation, too. Mm, yeah. So like cystitis and bladder kind of irritation, it could be helpful for that for some reason. Um, and then slippery elm I'll usually get as the powder and have people mix it with um, with like water or honey or something and make little like globs and, and kind of suck on it, um, almost like a, a lozenge. When I had a sore throat and I was talking about gagging down the echinacea and angiographis and stuff recently, the tincture. The other thing I made was I, I ran down and I, I mixed up mostly slippery on with a little bit of marshmallow root and a little bit of powdered sage. And mm. I mixed it all up. And then I added Manuka honey and I made like a strong, strong tea with licorice. And I used some of the licorice tea and some of the Manuka honey. And I kind of made it into like a, like Play-Doh consistency and made them into little balls, stuck it in the fridge. And then every, every so often, whenever I walked by the refrigerator, I would just grab two of those and pop it in my mouth and suck on them. And I don't know if it was the echinacea and the nasty tincture I took. I don't know if it was the little, the little goobers that I made with the slippery all and the marshmallow and whatnot. But the next day my sore throat was gone. So nice. Well, um, it's funny you bring up, you were talking about you said there was sage in that little tincture. Yeah. Sage keeps coming up with pregnancy or like with birthing type stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm going to like go into this hospital with hippy dippy like diffusions and I don't know, weird stuff. Um, yeah. Which They're would be fun. Right. But anyway. Um, and I think again, zinc carnosine. I know we've talked about that. You, mm-hmm. you like zinc carnosine too, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think just be a, be mindful if you tend to be iron deficient. I mm-hmm. would be cautious with taking a whole bunch of zinc carnosine because you probably will suppress your iron absorption at least a bit. Um, that kind of yeah. came up recently. I, I kind of like became more acutely aware of that. Somebody in FODMAP Freedom pointed it out and I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Darn it. Yeah. Because uh, it is zinc, right? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I also think... Some people are a little sensitive to zinc, like from a nausea component. Um, yeah. so, so that's something to be on the lookout 
for too. Like if you're someone that generally has a little bit of nausea, maybe try some other things first. Or again, like you might need to just like pair it. It might be a little more difficult to take on an empty stomach. Um, I don't think zincardine doesn't seem as bad for that though. It seems like when I've used other types of zinc before, they seem to be bigger culprits. I've had I have had patients throw up from right. taking their supplements. Like they'll take supplements shortly before a meal, and then they'll throw it all up, and they'll be like, "Oh God, I'm sick!" And then they it happens another time or two, and they put two and two together, and we figured out it's the zinc. So zinc can it's it serve in certain individuals it can make you not only really nauseous it can make you puke if you take yeah. it on a empty stomach or if you take too much yeah i think you're right it's it's probably less common i've seen it a few times listening carnosine but it's not it's not i think the same as you taking like a a, a normal yeah less stomach specific form of zinc yeah um, exactly but still like, something at least keep your wits about you and if you if you have an uptick in right. the nausea or or if you vomit then you can kind of put two and two together and realize oh that's what's happening um, right but yeah right. i mean i think a lot of the the herbs and supplements that you rattled off those are the ones that i typically use too um the other one i'll throw out there it's not an herb per se but it's a like proprietary supplement blend um biotics research has a product called gastrozyme it's g-a oh god hold on i'm a very bad verbal speller. Gastra, so G-A-S-T-R-A, Zyme, Z-Y-M-E. Oh, thank God I did that. Okay. Gastrozyme. Um, they're these weird little tablets. They're fairly small. They're tablets. I think if I remember correctly, they're like a bluish, greenish color. I don't remember what's in them. I don't. I'm sorry. Um, I don't remember the ingredients, but I know that they work. Um when my mom had the geyser bleeding ulcer and she was on PPIs for a while, one of the things that I had her pounding down by the fistful was gastrozyme. And that was one of the things that we kept her on for a while after she got off of the PPIs. And it was really helpful. And I've had a lot of other patients do very well with that. What you could do is you could take the tablet, you know, just swallow it like you would a normal supplement right? as is. And I've had some people take like, two or three of those in a sitting and do that two, three times a day. If the gastritis is really bad for a couple of weeks, that could be helpful. A lot of people feel benefit from it at a lower dose. So it doesn't break the bank. Um, right. But try to play with the dose and, and see where you find the sweet spot. If you have reflux, like bona fide actual reflux, and you know that your esophagus is irritated, you can chew these and then like, you know, you you crush it up and mix it with the saliva and then it gets a chance to coat the esophagus on the way down instead of just going into the stomach and doing its fun stuff in the stomach. I have been told that it's not the best tasting supplement. <laughs> so just right. be mindful that I warned you, it doesn't taste great, but you can chew them. They're perfectly safe to chew and they're tablets, so they're easy enough to chew up. And that way you can target a little bit more towards the esophagus as opposed to just the stomach itself. So you can play with that too. But gastrozyte is really, really very helpful also. Yeah, good, good one. I It's funny that you mentioned like tasting sensitivity. It's always interesting just people's different taste uh, uh, sensitivities to certain things. Um, sometimes clients are like, oh, I'm totally fine. I'll do it. And I'm like, okay, this is yeah. just generally one that's like hit or miss. Like if someone's 
okay with it. Um, and it's always it kind of I'm a weenie. I'm the opposite. I'm the opposite of that. I feel like, which again, like maybe if we were like, they need my perspective and then also your perspective because I'm someone who like, I can pretty much take anything. I can just throw it in my mouth, swish it down. Like I, I just do not tend to really care that much about things that don't taste bad. Like, again, I just feel like I have like a high threshold for things that taste really bad. Which again, like I don't sauce. It's because of all the sauce when you were in college. Maybe you were shooting back bourbon. Maybe, honest to God, honest to God. I I think Um, that's what I have to do though. Like since we talked to Thomas and he said that I have a very bad bitter deficiency. (laughs) I realized though, I was in another herbal class and I I realized like the guy was talking about bitters. This side tangent. The update to the saga that nobody needs needs or wants to know about. So uh, if you all recall, my herbalist friend Thomas said that I have a really bad bitter deficiency because I hate coffee and I hate beer. I find it too bitter. And um, I, I kind of I've been thinking about it more recently. And I like dark chocolate, like the darkest, nastiest, bitterest of the chocolate. Mm-hmm. I'm like, bring yeah. it, bring it. Right. Um, so and I could eat like dark leafy greens and be totally cool that like I enjoy leafy greens um like salads with like arugula and spinach and stuff right. in them so I actually don't know if I'm super sensitive to bitter what I think it actually is is that a I think I just don't like coffee right and that's just you know like whatever it is what it is but also um I think I'm super super sensitive to alcohol Right, because I was just telling you that I diluted a teaspoon of this tincture, like essentially right. a teaspoon of vodka, in an entire shot glass of water, and I still was like, Whoa, right. I can't handle this. And I was complaining about it. And it, I think it was less about the bitter in the herbs, and it's more about the alcohol in the tinctures that I take. But that's the thing is like herbalists use a lot of tinctures. And I just, I think that all tinctures are horrible and disgusting. And I just associated that with like, oh, I don't like bitter things. And a lot of herbs have some bitterness to them. No, I think I just really hate alcohol. Like I could do something. I could probably do like dandelion root as a tea or eat a big piece of dark chocolate and be fine. But it's the alcohol. And that's why I don't like beer. I think it's actually the alcohol in the beer that I dislike more than just the hops itself. Right, right. So that's interesting. The, the I'm plot glad. thickens. Right. Maybe maybe yeah. in our next season we'll cover this in more depth, but that's the update from the Thomas episode. Um where did that tangent start though? I am having a hard time remembering <laughs> well, we how covered, we got that. We covered the herbs. So yeah. do you want to talk about I we could talk about the oh, yeah. yeah, I think that that would be a good place to yeah. to head. Yeah, um, yeah, I, th- I think that that's going to be pretty much the rest of the conversation because right. we covered, like, we cr- we covered um, erosive gastritis in pretty pretty good detail. Um, like I said, like to start us off with the autoimmune gastritis people, a lot of them don't know they have it until I'm the one talking to them about it. Right. A lot of them don't have symptoms that you would think of with gastritis. Like they don't necessarily have like the burning or the gnawing or like the rawness or the irritation 
a lot of times they present with symptoms of low stomach acid. So honestly, mm -hmm. that's usually when I'm doing the workup for it is if I have a patient who's like, you know, has all of the classic symptoms of low stomach acid, or if they say, yeah, I've been taking beta-HCL and it's helping, but I have to take like 10 capsules a meal or something really weirdly high. I'm usually hunting for this and it's not uncommon. Like it's, it's probably in the top 10 or 20 most common autoimmune diseases. It's, right. it's not uncommon. It's not as common as like Hashimoto's, um, but it's when the immune system starts attacking the parietal cells, which are the cells that make stomach acid. And what you get is you get this loss of glandular tissue in the stomach. And it um, they call it atropic gastritis when they see it on an endoscopy. Um, sometimes they'll diagnose it on an endoscopy and they'll like do a biopsy and they'll or they'll see it on the endoscopy when they're in there. But usually I'm diagnosing this with blood work and I'm looking for antiparietal cell antibodies. Um, but again, to me, it's there's going to be two parts to it is that, A, you need to support what that person can no longer make on their own. So it's like if you have right. a type 1 diabetic, their pancreas is under siege and now they can't make insulin. What do you do? You get them insulin. Like you replace right. the stuff they can't make on their own with Hashimoto's. As their TSH climbs up and their thyroid is unable to produce thyroid hormone, you get those people on some thyroid hormone re replacement. So that's one element is just getting them on some exogenous BTA-HCL. And then the other thing is trying to pacify and soothe their immune system. Part of that is going to go with working on like antimicrobial stuff. Like if you have an infection or a dysbiosis, that's a really good reason for your immune system to be jacked up and ticked off at you and attacking right. weird stuff. So like still doing the antimicrobial kind of stuff as needed is relevant. Um, you know, probiotics, prebiotics, stress reduction, sleep, all of the kit and caboodle that we've talked about before. But um, this is also a place where anti-inflammatories can go a long way. So things like turmeric, fish oil, resveratrol, um, sulforaphane, boswellia, green tea, like all of these antioxidant type supplements mm. can help calm the inflammation, calm down the immune system and get your immune system to take a chill pill so that it's not attacking the parietal cells anymore. Right. So those are the couple of things I would factor in. Also be mindful of B vitamins and iron mm. because as you yeah. lose stomach acidity, your ability to digest and absorb those goes out. So you, right. you might need to supplement those too. Right. Good points. I don't know if I have anything major to add. Like you covered, you covered, you covered the bases. Sorry, I, I stole that topic. I should have, I should have been a better no. partner and I should have like divided okay. it into morsels for us to go back and forth with. It's okay. Um, I f well, I feel like to just like my pregnancy brain, I feel like just like, I don't know. We're at like the 115 point. I feel like that's about when my pregnancy brain's like, oh man, like we've we've been talking for a decent amount of time. I'm bored of this Nikki chick. Let's get <laughs> I, out of here. Well, both my pregnancy brain and my pregnancy bladder is more just like, oh, there's a lot going on in my body that uh, resources are are now diverting back to to creating yeah. life. Yes. Um, well, and that's all right. We. We all are aware you have you have bigger fish to fry right now, my darling. You you've got a human to grow and incubate, 
Yeah, and it's crazy. It's just creeping it up. The, the due date just creeps up on you, too. Out of curiosity, have you had any notable amount of acid reflux? Because that yeah, is good... very common in pregnant women. It's a good question. I, I would say I've had slightly more. Um, again, I'm t- kind of the type of person that, you know, there are some foods that just naturally give me acid reflux. Tomatoes are one that mm. um, just generally, if I eat a ton of it, will give me a little acid reflux. Nothing major, but, you know, I'll notice, like, if I go a little hard in the paint with, like, a gluten-free pasta with tomato sauce I might feel a little bit like sometimes it's not enough to dissuade me from eating it um so you know I I, I'll you know take DGL or something or do something to kind of coat the the throat if I'm gonna do it and it gets bad but that's very rare um in terms of pregnancy I've been relatively low from a reflux standpoint I think I've had slightly higher levels, so, but nothing crazy. And I've, I've kind of haven't really been eating small meals either. Like I've tried to keep it mainly, I've been eating like more snacks just to, yeah, my appetite's very large and in charge. So, and I tend to, I would say during pregnancy, I've had more of the tendency to be hypoglycemic. So Mm -hmm. I've noticed Mm -hmm. like I, I have to have like a, a mid-afternoon snack. So, like, usually I'll have a snack around yeah. four before dinner, which I never yeah. needed before. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I've noticed slightly more reflux than usual, but nothing major at all. It might get worse just as I'm getting bigger and there's less room. And um, I think it helps. I'm not overly, sh- like, I'm pretty average in height. Like, I feel like mm. sometimes the, the women that are, like, 5'1 or 5'2 or 5 feet tall and there's just, like, yeah. nowhere for this baby to go, I think sometimes those are the women that have a little bit of a harder time with some stuff like reflux because it's just, like, there's nowhere for there's that baby to, to go. <laughs> Again, it goes out more. I think it just puts a lot more pressure on the yeah. spine. Um, the best way I've heard it described, uh, I don't know if you ever watched the stand-up comedian Ralphie May, uh, but he described his wife when she was pregnant, and he said it was like a snake that swallowed a basketball. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. And I thought that was such a good a, a good description for like, yeah, these really petite women uh, who then have this massive baby ballooning right. out from their belly. Um, it's like how's this gonna work it's like it's just kind of crazy I mean and and it does I mean that's the insane part but yeah it's it's always really interesting to me when you have like I had a teacher in in dietetic school and she was always pregnant she had like four babies back to back and it was like the whole time I was in school and she was I she was five foot zero or four eleven and so she was just always this little teeny tiny lady with just this big old belly. Um, and it's just like, oh my gosh, I just don't know where your, where your babies are going. Like, again, it's clearly popping out, but it's, yeah. it was just, it's interesting. It's interesting. The human body, ladies and gents, the human body. Right. I mean, well, and I'll say this too, this came up on, I forget what it was like a, a reel or something that I saw some clip of a stand-up comedian where they were talking about 
giving birth and how weird it is. And they were like, yeah, and like, like animals, well, you, they had, the baby has to be able to survive immediately. And like right. a giraffe, like the mama giraffe doesn't even squat down. <laughs> the giraffe just goes like right, 20 right. feet to the ground. And then the mom <laughs> just walks away and is like, come on, we're going to be late. Come on. Right. You're right. Get over here. And the poor baby, like all covered in mucus, just has to figure out how to how to function immediately. And here, right. here the human babies are, these useless little blobs. Right, right. Themselves. It's a good thing they're cute. Right, right. They yeah, can't I, even I, hang on to us. I know. Like, I know. I know. They're, they can't even hold their head up. It's like, I know. Uh, I, At least monkeys can like hang on to the mom's back or something and cling on right. to the fur. Not human babies. No. Right, it's it's funny. We're just like their baby's just flopping all. Yeah, their ba- their heads just flopping all over the place. We have to scream, watch the head over and over again, yeah. until they're like three although, months. Although, let me say, if you start pounding down the Hagen dust right now, hashtag not yeah. sponsored. If you start doing that now, you might be able to grow a whopper like I was, and then you don't have to worry about the head rolling all over the place because for some reason. And I don't understand like how this would work, but for some reason I was a gigantic, but, but because I was gigantic, my parents say I looked like a three month old when I came out of the womb because I was 11 pounds, 14 ounces. Oh my gosh. Somehow I was also as strong as a three month old, which that's the part that doesn't make sense to me because I was able to hold my head up in like the nursery or whatever in the hospital from the day I was born. And the nurses were like, like oh god what's what what is that baby so start start exclusively feeding that child hagadas today and you think armand would like that (laughs) armand approves of this message now we're in cahoots that's what it was he was texting me he's like get her to eat only ice cream i need ice cream um yeah just start incubating like a giant dairy fed baby you know what it might you know what it might have been in in the Hagen Dash? Maybe there's that gly- glycillin or whatever from that study. Maybe maybe that was maybe. the secret ingredient. Maybe no, it was probably like the the bad hormones <laughs> that they put in the milk. <laughs> right, because right. I was born right. in 1986, so they probably you know how like everything nowadays nowadays says no added hormones. Right, they put that label on there for a reason because back in right. the day they probably gave the cattle all the hormones. And it was probably in the milk. So it was probably just pumping me up with like weird amounts of like growth hormone and God knows what else. Probably true. You're a growth hormone baby. (laughs) You're an antibiotic cow dairy baby. Well, it would make sense because I'm six feet tall. So I I did continue growing and become a giant in adult life as well. I wasn't just a giant baby. Right. Uh, the, The trajectory kept up. Right. Yeah, I'll oh, be man. deeply curious to see how big Cece is. Yeah, I'm curious. And, and find out like what her personality is. I swear we knew Jess's personality from the moment she was born. Oh my gosh. Like, she takes zero shit from anyone. She's going to rule the world. She's right, world's wrong. Like all of that was right. motherly apparent from like the day she was born. Well, we'll have to see. I'm, I'm interested to see how hairy she is. Because like I'm kind of a hairy person and then Armand's Persian and just yeah. I always say like he's he's a third generation unibrow 
Um, <laughs> and so I'm like, I just think this baby's going to come out with a lot of hair, um, yeah, which I think it'll sense. be cute, will be cute. But I'm, that's what I'm like wondering. It's like how much hair and like how dark is her hair? Um, how much does like his Persian, cause he's half Persian. Like how much does that dominate yeah, her, um, her like skin tone and her hair and yeah. that kind of stuff? Um, yeah. Cause you are pale as the, as the snow. Right. I'm like so, the pa- I'm like a sheet of paper, like that's my shade. And then he's again, he's dark. I mean, he's brown. He's more brown because he's Persian. And it's like how, like I could see it going both ways because some like a lot of my family are like, oh, she's gonna have just like the most beautiful skin. And I'm like, I think she's just gonna look like normal white. Like she's gonna look like I'm so pale. He's again like half Persian. I just think she's gonna look like a normal, like run of the mill yeah, like more Caucasian. Like shade, right. Yeah. Right. A normal run of the mill Caucasian uh uh little lady. So we'll we'll have to see. But I'm I curious because like sometimes there's people where it's like one kid is just really dark, like mm-hmm. dad, and then one kid's light, and that's confusing to me too. But yeah. it's just funny, like how it's some not babies. Like mixed in, I guess. Right. It's like it's right. what genes are turned on and turned off. Right. Right. It's it's an it's crazy. Um, yeah, my brain definitely would assume automatically that it would be like mixing paint, and it would be like Armand plus right. A equals this. Right. Right. It's funny too because I'm. I would say in our family, me and my my brother the oldest and then i'm the third of four we're definitely the light lighter mm-hmm. of our kids in our family and then my sister my youngest sister actually tans fairly okay like she still could burn but yeah like she's just more darker complected skin tone than me mm-hmm. so again it's that stuff fascinates me like how does that win out um but it'll it'll be interesting to me i think she's gonna be a little hairball She's gonna like pop out. She's gonna have a lot of hair, and then Jim so. will be like, "Oh, my sister! I recognize her." <laughs> right, like, oh, right. Maybe he'll think she's a puppy. <gasps> he'll lick her. He'll lick her hair, probably. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. It'll be cute. I it'll be cute. Photos and videos of of the whole fam. Yeah. You know, when you're in, it'll able. be good. No rush, but also right. Some- right. I'm sure. I'm. I the amount of pictures I take of Chip and then again, like having a human child, yeah. I think will make me even worse. Yeah. So I'm sure I'll send all the it's pictures. Good you know. Right. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of You're a terror right. when it comes to like, look at my dog baby. I can't imagine when I have a human baby, I'm going to be a criminal. I feel like about sharing stuff. <laughs> so I'm sure it'll, it'll, You'll you'll see all the pictures. I'm here for it. I will never tire of dog or cat or baby. Well, animal or baby photos. I just won't ever tire of it. So right, right, right. Yes. But um, but my darling, do you remember that we're still recording? By the way, because I feel <laughs> like we've we've gone on a hard tangent, and these people are like, do they have anything else to talk about with regards to gastritis? No, we don't. We were done. Right, we were done like <laughs> right. ten minutes ago. You were just here. You silly Billy, you're just talking, you're just hanging out with us now, but 
why don't we wrap here and then we can chitter chat for a moment or you can go pee with either one. Uh, but guys, as always, thank you for tuning in for the IBS Freedom Podcast. It is hard to believe that we're coming up on episode 100. Oh, before you know it. Oh, that'll be a fun day for sure. When we record that, Amy will be like ultra pregnant slash having contractions, I'm sure. (laughs) Right. I'll be in early labor. Yeah. I'm going to make you sit and I'm going to have like Armand lock you in this room until we record. (laughs) You're not allowed to go to the hospital yet, Amy. Darn it. Right. The Uh, doctor will have to come here. Yep. With, with the microphone and the whole, the whole thing. Mm. Yep. Yep. That would be yep. a weird episode, but we'll refrain. We'll, we'll let her have a normal <laughs> birth and not record a podcast simultaneously. But we, we are trying to squeeze these episodes in before Cece decides to make her appearance in the world. But uh, true, you know the drill. You know where to find us. Go find us. And we will see you on the next episode of the Ideal Street of Podcasts. Toodling.